BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Welcome to today's episode, which will likely deal with some dark topics and sometimes sweary words. So listener discretion is always advised. For ad-free and bonus episodes, click in the link in the show notes for exclusive content. You can support the show at buymeacoffee.com or by giving me a rate, writing a review, or subscribing to future episodes. And with all my marketing blah 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 out of the way, on with the show. Hello and welcome to A Million Other Choices. I am your host, Kim. I have a story for you today that happened in Calgary and I didn't know about it. I actually only discovered it when I was doing some other research. And I know that I have this very odd life where a lot of my waking hours are dedicated to hearing and reading about murder, Um, but I'm always kind of annoyed with myself when I find myself unaware of a story. Like how could I call myself a real podcaster if I'm not aware of every murder that has ever happened? But unfortunately there's just too many of them. But having said that, I just want to do a little a little check-in for all of you. After more than a year of weekly stories, I can't say that it isn't starting to have more of sort of an emotional effect on me than it did prior to having the podcast. I, I mean, I certainly find myself a little bit more emotionally attached to the stories than I was before, but I also can't stop. So what I found helpful for me to do is to do things in batches. So I'll spend maybe two weeks in a row where I spend every evening and weekends researching back-to-back cases and putting together episodes and then I'll take like at least a week off where I do a lot more fun stuff and just really stay away from the news and anything murder related and that has been very helpful for me because I just thought you might be interested to know where my head and my mental health is is in regards to the podcast and as of today I still feel good I still feel it's sustainable for me and it isn't detrimental to my own well-being so for now you can expect more episodes and for things to continue Um, There might be times when I might have to throw in a good news episode here and there. I do realize that this is something that I've done to myself. Like, this isn't my job. I don't have to do a podcast, and I certainly don't have to do one every week. But I'm also still very passionate about it and sharing victim stories and bringing awareness. Um, Sometimes passions can have a dark side. Anyways, I just wanted to share a little bit of my own journey with this and let you know that, that I am very human when it comes to trauma and tragedy. Uh, I just try to be very professional when I record and not get weepy and stuff because I think that that can come off as sometimes insincere. Um, I'd never want to come off as cold and unfeeling, but getting emotional over another person's trauma, it just doesn't translate very well into audio. And with all that, let's get on with today's story. This is the murder of little Shannon Morissette. 
The neighborhood of Forest Lawn in Calgary has suffered a bit with a bad reputation for being a crime haven with a lot of drugs and sex trade workers. And I mean, as far as Canadian cities go, it's kind of known as a bit of a ghetto. But that isn't exactly how Forest Lawn began. It was actually named after the Hollywood Cemetery, and the name was a bit of a marketing tool to entice buyers to the edge of the city. Forest Lawn itself actually used to be a town all on its own back in 1934, but was annexed by the city of Calgary in 1961. Back then, the town was originally formed with a large number of European immigrants who were farmers, doctors, and workers in the then-developing oil industry. Many new immigrants to Calgary are drawn to the Forest Lawn area as the housing prices have remained of the lowest in any area of the city. And with the high immigrant population comes a plethora of great authentic restaurants and rich culture and was a great place to put down roots. It's close to downtown with very scenic views and the immigrant population has provided a very rich cultural environment. But it's taken on a lot of misrepresentation in the media and they have kind of had a self-identity issue. Although many longtime residents have purchased their homes back in the 1950s and then passed those homes on to their children, many properties have become rentals. In fact, a whopping 57% of the houses in the area are rentals. And with a population where 38 to 42% don't have a high school education and a median family income of only $40,000 a year, a lot of these rentals are either occupied in the short term by people who don't get involved in their communities or by landlords that don't maintain their properties. And as a longtime resident, Brenda Cozens, told the Calgary Journal in 2012, the place gets a lot of bad press, but there are a lot of good, upstanding, hardworking people. Anything that happens east of Deerfoot and south of 16th Avenue gets called Forest Lawn because it used to be a town and it encompassed a lot of the area. People still think that Albert Park, Pembroke, and Dover are Forest Lawn. So for a community that has about maybe 8,000 people, we get blamed for an area of about 50,000 people. In 1992, five-year-old Shannon Morissette lived with her mom, Janet, her stepfather, Chris Hiltz, older brother Christopher, and baby sister Rebecca in a low-rent housing complex on 35th Street and close to 18th Avenue in Forest Lawn, a housing complex that attracted a lot of single-parent families trying to make ends meet. So there were a lot of kids within the complex with which five-year-old Shannon made easy friends despite the fact that she was deaf and could only communicate with sign language, although she could read lips. Being a complex of houses, neighbors knew each other and were very watchful. So Shannon and the other children were often out in the alley behind the buildings, which they had kind of converted into a bit of a makeshift park. The kids would share their bikes and other toys, and in the summer months, kids dotting the landscape of the complex with their water guns and laughter was background noise to the residents. But Shannon lived in a silent world and was prone to kind of doing her own thing at times. It wasn't uncommon for her to wander to the corner store without first asking permission. In fact, she often wandered off, leaving her mom in a panic and at times having to call the police to help and locate her, usually at a friend's place or just off playing on her own in a corner of the complex. Most parents weren't able to afford summer camps and daycare, so the kids and neighbors just kind of hung out and the place had kind of a small town feel. As one 16-year-old at the time with a paper route in the area told the Calgary Herald back in 1992, when you're poor and you have a friend, that's what's important, and that's what people in the block know. They stick together. It doesn't matter if you're black or white or Vietnamese, they all chummed around together. 
Some of the residents were unemployed or living on social assistance, so they were home and would be in the yard or on their balconies. Shannon was described by neighbors as a very trusting child. She played with dolls like a lot of five-year-olds and was always smiling. She was known by most of the shopkeepers close to the house and most of the people in the complex. So, on a sunny and hot Saturday, August 15th, 1992, it's a little bit hard to track down her, ex her exact movements, but most of her day was spent outdoors. Janet watched her get on her bike and head to her friend Starlet's house. Sometime shortly before noon, she was spotted outside Vic's food store with about three other children, and then she attended a birthday party between 12 and 3, where she was wearing her bathing suit because the party involved playing in the sprinkler. After 3, a few of the kids stuck around to continue to play in the water, but Shannon had wandered off. At around 5 p.m., Janet headed out to round her up for dinner. She checked all the usual places and asked around. A 13-year-old named Tony saw Janet calling her and was about to say, she's just over there, alluding to the alley behind the buildings that had been used as this makeshift park. But when he turned to look and point in that direction, she was no longer there. By 9 p.m., Janet was in a panic. Her worst fear was Shannon and her wandering was being hit by a car, and she was starting to think something had happened to little Shannon that she wasn't just in her own little world playing a game, but possibly injured and unable to get help. Janet called the police, and when they arrived, it was summer, so it still wasn't quite dark yet, so they set to work doing their normal search patterns, knocking on doors, armed with a picture, and walking around the complex and to neighboring businesses inquiring about Shannon. By midnight, no sign of her had been found, and the police had no choice but to call off the search outside. They continued to knock on doors until the wee hours of the morning. Janet was completely distraught. At first light, a barrage of officers returned to the complex and continued their search, and just after 7 a.m., an officer combing the strip mall at 1829 35th Street, just two blocks from Shannon's house, the officer uncovered a duffel bag shoved into a dumpster that contained Shannon's little crumpled body. Still dressed in her one-piece bathing suit, which was now folded down around her knees, exposing her, suggesting strongly that a sexual assault had accompanied her murder, and she had a large slash wound to her neck. Police immediately put all available officers on the case. Homicide spokesperson at the time, Ray McBrien, said, This is being given top priority. Everything else has been dropped for now. Five officers were immediately tasked with sealing off the area around the complex and the strip mall to look for clues. The medical examiner and the police didn't release any details and parents scooped their kids up and kept them indoors panicked that something like this could happen so close to home. Dr. Alan Weston, who was the director of forensic assessments at the General Hospital, told reporters, quote, sexual assault is the most likely cause of murder in a child of Shannon's age. He hypothesized that the man was probably in his mid-twenties to early thirties and likely knew the girl and her family. This caused quite a stir in the neighborhood with parents calling out other parents for letting their kids out of their sight and calls for the return of the death penalty for whoever could have done this to a child. One of Janet's neighbors, Barb Weeb, started a petition to bring the death penalty back for child killers and got over 150,000 signatures backed by an organization called A Voice for Innocent Children. Calgarians from all parts of the city, including donations from the Bank of Montreal, raised $10,000 for little, little Shannon's burial. 
Shannon had been the first child killed in such a way in Calgary since little Kimmy Thompson was murdered in 1981 by Harold Schmelzer, a case that I covered in my very first episode. Police had their early suspicions that whoever had killed Shannon lived nearby, but they hadn't been able to track down anyone that was looking or acting suspiciously. Then a couple of days later, they got an unexpected break in the case. A 36-year-old construction worker was arrested on an outstanding warrant for impaired driving. The man was brought to the Calgary Remand Centre to await his hearing, and he told his cellmate a story that he found rather disturbing. The man said that a little girl in his neighbourhood named Shannon had smiled at him and come on to him. Now remember, she's five, so that's disgusting. And he had killed her by strangling her and cutting her throat. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets and so much more download the app in virginia today and get 150 dollars in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at betmgm betmgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly see betmgm.com for terms 21 plus only virginia only new customer offer subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days please gamble responsibly gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER promotional offer not available in washington dc gleason bennett williams was born in newfoundland within a family of 11 siblings to parents mary and chester his parents divorced when he was a child and his mom later remarried his stepfather ed he later moved to Saskatchewan's Milk River and worked in a slaughterhouse before marrying and having a son named Chester. But they separated around 1991. That's when Gleason moved to Calgary and into a basement apartment in the set of apartments directly behind the complex the Morissette family lived in. He took up construction and drinking. He was arrested in the Remand Centre and charged with first-degree murder due to the commission of the crime during a sexual assault. However, the medical examiner's office ran tests but were unable to prove that a sexual assault actually took place, despite the state of her bathing suit and most likely motive for the killing, and his charges were later downgraded to second degree. Gleason denied having any sexual contact with Shannon and gave more than one version of the story. In the version that later convicted him, he said that around 2 p.m. that afternoon, little Shannon appeared near his doorway and he invited her into his apartment. Shannon, being trusting, did so, and he gave her an orange and an apple, and she left. But she returned a bit later, and that's when he took her inside and strangled her and cut her throat twice with a knife. He said that at the time that he did it, it was because he was tired of her coming and looking in his windows. In a later version of the story, he claimed that he had been drinking that day and was fixing the carpet on the stairs when he closed his door and didn't see her there and accidentally cut her throat. He tried to resuscitate her and couldn't, so he went to a bar and drank some more before deciding to put her in a duffel bag and into a dumpster behind the strip mall. But he didn't really have an answer for why the cut to the throat had been post-mortem or why his story didn't fit his original story, 
like why he didn't open with that story, even though it was pure bullshit. On Monday, March 15, 1993, after pleading guilty to the lesser second-degree murder charge, Williams was sentenced to a life sentence with no parole for 20 years. Eight victim impact statements were read, including, of course, her mother, Janet, who told reporters, I hope he rots. There is no justice because there is no Shannon. My biggest fear for Shannon being deaf and not being able to speak was getting hit by a car. Not that somebody would take her and do things to her, murder her and throw her in the garbage. That was the farthest thing from my mind. The Crown Prosecutor Bruce Fraser told reporters about the second degree plea. There was no one that could tell us give expert evidence that this was a sexual assault or murder in the course of a sexual assault. Gleason Williams was sent to serve his sentence in New Brunswick at the Dorchester Institution. Janet moved to Regina to be closer to her other family members and to get away from the memories of Shannon's murder. In July 2008, so only, only 15 years in, the family was outraged to learn that he was already seeking day passes to be allowed to visit his family in Prince Edward Island and in Nova Scotia. Janet spent close to $4,000 of her own money to get plane tickets for her and three of her family to go to the hearing to give victim impact statements. He withdrew his application to the National Parole Board. Normally, day passes are up to the discretion of the warden of the prison, but when you are serving a life sentence, they have to go through the National Parole Board. Full parole and day passes are not the same thing, and escorted and unescorted leaves can be applied for before the parole eligibility period is up. Janet was relieved that he had changed his mind and said, I'm glad he's not going vacationing. In May 2009, he again applied for day passes, and this time he did not withdraw his application, and the family again headed out to New Brunswick to give their statements that he should never see the light of day. Williams was applying so that he could visit his aging mother and visit one of his sister's graves. Janet told the parole board, I am trapped in a prison. There is no parole board, no early release. I have no date that says I'm released from my pain. I lost my daughter and my desire for life. Rebecca Morissette, Shannon's little sister, who was only 18 months when, she's, when her sister Shannon was killed, told Gleason directly, I never got to know my sister. You threw her in the garbage for absolutely nothing. His application was denied at that time because he still hadn't accepted responsibility for Shannon's murder and blamed it on his drinking at the time. Gleason's criminal past dated back to 1981, and in each case, his drinking was part of the problem. He told the board, quote, I don't trust myself when I've been drinking. If I never drank, I wouldn't be sitting here. But drinking is an excuse. Drinking doesn't make an already shitty person more of a shitty person. It just makes you more likely to get caught. Child sexual predators don't only come out after a beer or two. Anyone who would pull a girl's breathing suit down and strangle her and put her in a duffel bag isn't doing it because Smirnoff made him do it. They do that because they are sick and prey on helpless victims. The board only took 45 minutes to reach their decision to deny him any time out of the walls of the prison. Shannon's aunt and Janet's sister Claudette said, The audacity just for him to ask for any kind of release just makes me sick. We came from far away to keep this guy in prison and we did it. We did it. Another aunt, Kathy, said, I think us being there and they could feel our energy and our emotion, I think it helped them make a decision. And then Janet said of the decision, I'm just happy about it. Two weeks ago, I was worried that he'd be out and I'd be alive to see him free. 
Now I can live a little bit peacefully. One month later, the federal government introduced a bill to end the Fate Hope Clause that allows murderers to apply for parole after serving only 15 years of their sentences. Janet told Norma Greenway from the CanWest News, I know it wouldn't help my case, but in, my, in the future it might help others. It's pure hell to know he could be free and go home to his family. I say when murder victims get to go home, then those guys get to go home too. On Friday night, June 26, 2009, just before 6 p.m., about two months after Gleason's denied hearing, her phone rang and she saw on the caller ID Government of Canada. Janet and her sister Kathy recounted that night to Sarah McGuinness. My heart started racing. I started thinking, oh no, he's appealed and I have to go back there. All those emotions in the 30 seconds of answering the phone. But the caller identified himself from victim services and told her that the day before, Williams had been found unresponsive in his cell and pronounced dead from an apparent suicide. Janet said, I know Gleason Bennett Williams' death will never bring Shannon back, but I spent every day thinking I'm going to see this man walk free. That was another unbearable thought in my mind. It's like a nightmare that you just never wake up from, always reliving the garbage dumpster, the brutality of it. It was just horrible, a hell you never climb out of. Kathy said, ultimately, it will provide closure for us to at least have the knowledge that he won't be injuring another child. It was really, really hard, especially for Janet. If he had passed away before we had a chance to let him know how we were really feeling, there would not have been that closure. Janet told Sarah that Shannon never gave up on life or anything. She was full of life and joy and happiness. Her memory will live with me forever. And that was the murder of little Shannon Morissette. There are a lot of parallels to Kimmy Thompson's story, both five years old, both taken in broad daylight by a sexual predator. And I don't care what Gleason says, he was a sexual predator. One of the things I hate most about these stories, um, most of the stories that I relate to you, is the thought of someone dying alone and frightened. And when that victim is a child, it is the most heartbreaking because a five-year-old doesn't want to be alone, like ever. And not being able to speak or hear, to not only be alone, but alone in your head at five years old. The tragedy and what Janet thinks about probably still daily is just a lot to bear as a human being. My heart goes out to the Morissette family, and I hope that it doesn't mean that we can't allow our children to ride their bikes and be outside and having child a, having a childhood anymore. I always kind of waffle on this one. My logical brain says the chances are minuscule, and it's far better to let kids have some freedom so they don't grow up in a bubble. They need to learn some street skills. But then I think, but what if that one time something happens? It's really hard to find a balance these days. Being a true crime buff, I think that my thoughts are always pretty dark about what can happen. But even I did let my kids play at the park with their friends and I let them go to sleepovers and even made them take the train to school through downtown. But on the other hand, I made them keep their location services on and was always telling them to walk with purpose, no headphones in. Now, both my kids have survived to adulthood, but if you are interested in letting your kids outdoors and around other humans, there is a great program available in most larger cities here in Canada called Child Safe Canada, and they have programs for kids at pretty reasonable prices from kids aged four up to adults. 
things like don't touch my body, anger management, home alone safety, babysitting certification, drug and alcohol prevention, and internet safety, and just a whole lot more. They are really fantastic and um, nope, they don't sponsor me, although I think they should because I've recommended them before. But anyways, they're great and the information is presented in a very age-appropriate way that kids really enjoy. Uh, so they actually get some great information out of it. So I would encourage you with kids to check out their website at childsafecanada.com. I will be back again next week with another story. Until then, do your rate review thing and don't forget about exclusive content linked in the show notes, all that blah, blah, blah. As always... Thank you so much for listening. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.